Before we get stuck into the next episode, we have a favour to ask. And before you try and skip forward by 10 seconds, I promise you, it won't cost you a cent. Just a moment of your time. We need your help, or more specifically, we need your vote, because Where Are You Taking Me has been nominated as part of the Australian Podcast Awards. Yay! So if you enjoy the show, you can vote now. All you have to do is head to our Facebook page or Instagram as well. Just search for at Where Are You Taking Me Pod, and you can click on the link. If you can't find us, send us an email or a message. We'll steer you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. We need you, seriously, because even if we win nothing, walk away empty-handed, that's completely fine. But ultimately, it will help us spread the word about where are you taking me? In fact, just hit pause. Come back to the show. It's not going anywhere. We'll just wait. Have you done it yet? How about now? Okay, fine. Have it your way. Here's our latest episode. Please vote. Thank you. No, please vote. But thank please. you also. You're just, the best. Thanks, like guys. Three minutes. It's okay, bye. Two minutes. Enjoy. So um, tell me what's happened. <laughs> I think that being a smiley person sometimes gets me into trouble <laughs> because I just, I was walking up past a lady heading up towards the high place of sacrifice in Petra and the lady just called out, where are you from? Of course I responded because I'm trying to be a good, helpful, friendly tourist. Um, next thing I know, this little lady has grabbed my hand out of my pocket and has actually led me the whole way around the high place of sacrifice whilst playing her flute. 15 years up. Yeah. What a flat. Oh. Yeah. Breathe. Take some time. No, no, bro. What about this guy? The cat tourist. <laughs> cat tourist. <laughs> yeah. as well that this little lady she's getting around in a pair of shoes or a pair of boots that were probably two sizes too big climbing up rock faces whilst dragging a much taller Australian woman behind her <laughs> we've been on the road for more than six months now this isn't the first time this has happened is no it? I'm regularly adopted I need to stop smiling at people <laughs> probably won't be the last <laughs> Gabby, I reckon if we didn't have more of the world to see right now, that Nana would still be leading you around. Welcome to Where Are You Taking Me? I'm Nick King. And I'm Gabby Lyons. And no, I am not still being towed around by a cute little lady in Petra. But you can see photos not only of the sweet lady, but many more of our adventures on our Instagram page at Where Are You Taking Me Pod. Or if Facebook is more your style, you can find us there as well. If you've never heard of Jordan, which is exactly where we are coming from for this episode, it's pretty much smack bang in the middle of, well, the Middle East, sharing borders with Syria, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Israel, the Palestinian territories and Egypt. If you Google Jordan, the first result you'll probably come back with is the ancient city of Petra and, well, Indiana Jones. More on that soon, but we should really get things started, Nick. Yalla, yalla! Yalla, yalla! <laughs> That's that's Arabic for let's start the episode. Yalla! Let's start this episode the same way that every good day should start, in my humble opinion. And of course, that's with coffee. 
Nick, I think, by and large, Jordanian coffee has been the absolute best coffee we have had anywhere in the world. I didn't realise just how bad the Sri Lankan coffee was <laughs> until we got to Jordan and their coffee just blew me away. And the way they make it too, it's like an art form. They get the coffee and the water and they put it in this copper, like a little pot, okay? Mm. And then they've got a wok like you would cook a stir fry in that's full of hot desert sand. Red sand. And then they stir this pot through the sand until it boils. So the idea is that it boils it from every side, not just underneath. The taste is amazing. Latte drinkers, be warned. The Arabic coffee is not served with milk. It is a black coffee, but I promise you it's worth trying, even if you are a milky coffee drinker, because the Arabic coffee is infused with cardamom. So the coffee flavour is actually quite spicy as well. It's almost like having a chai and adding cinnamon on top, but so much better. It's it's addictive. It is a daily necessity to these people. Yeah, 10 out of 10 would drink again. <laughs> Let's talk about actual first impressions of Jordan, though. We flew into the capital, Amman, and we arrived quite late at night, so it was dark when we got off the plane. It was dark when we arrived at our accommodation. Mm. When we woke up the next morning, though, it was like it was another world. Mm. And I think for the very first time on this trip, you actually had culture shock, Ab. Yeah, definitely. We opened those curtains that first morning and looked out over the city of Amman and I just felt my jaw hit the ground. (laughs) It's like looking out across sandcastles. It is every kind of cliche image you could think of of the Middle East. It is sandstone buildings as far as the eye can see with small cut windows and very sparse cars all over the road, which I found quite odd. There's not a lot of parking. There's not a lot of traffic until about 5.30 at night. And I just felt really isolated. I think the lack of colour in the surroundings really struck me. On top of that, they start their day really late too. So Mm. when we woke up, it kind of had this real apocalyptic kind of feel to it. Yeah, I think that's the vibe I'm talking about. The moment I realised we were in a totally new part of the world, though, was hearing the Adhan, or the Muslim call to prayer, which happens five times a day, the very first at which is about 4.30 in the morning. So that, that woke me up. That, that's better than the roosters that you copped in uh, the Philippines, yeah, though, right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Speaking of the call to prayer, I'd actually really like to share a very specific moment with you. On our very first day in Amman, we went to visit the ancient citadel, which sits atop the central hill of Amman. And the rest of the city kind of cascades down the hillsides into a valley around these ruins. The rooftops stretch out far beyond the horizon. It seriously is like Aladdin. You want to jump along every rooftop. But as you look out across the city, you can spot the minarets of the local mosques in every direction. And there are dozens. Mm. Now, as we were wandering through the ruins, making our way into the crumbling sandstone passageways of the old city, the call to prayer erupted from the far western mosque. And from each minute onward, the next call began. Slowly, minute by minute, we were totally engulfed in the harmonies and caught in a trance-like state as the call to prayer echoed around the walls of the citadel.
One lesson we learnt the hard way travelling through a Muslim country, and we learnt this one back in Sri Lanka, is that on Fridays, most things are shut down. Friday is the holy day. A lot of stores are closed for most, if not all, of the day. So if you're going to be in Jordan on a Friday, maybe organise a day tour or some sort of trip outside of the city. Which brings us to our next point, and that's public transport. Mm -hmm. As per usual. It doesn't exist in Jordan. It really doesn't. I mean, there are buses between the big cities, but they're pretty few and far between. They often leave at really odd times of the day, like 6.30 in the morning Mm -hmm. or earlier for a trip that might take an hour or so. (laughs) Most... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're talking from experience. Trust me, it's not that. It's it's not as funny when you're there and you're trying to get from A to B. Mm-mm. Most tourists that do go rely on private car transfers, or they'll hire their own vehicle or take taxis. For the most current info, you're probably best asking your accommodation, find out what they've got on offer, because there is very little information to be found online. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, if you do actually ask, where's the bus station? Someone will just say, oh, no, I'll take you, and you'll end up paying double the price. Or there's three bus stations and they'll take you to the wrong one. (laughs) Again, from experience. Now, getting from A to B was probably our biggest spend in what already is... Well, an expensive country. Comfortably, I can say that our cheapest trip was probably 14 Aussie dollars each, meaning that the most expensive was probably around $50 each. And that's just getting around. And, uh, well, I'm sorry to say, listeners, accommodation ain't much better. (laughs) Not to mention, hostels are not really common in Jordan. So even as a backpacker, you're more likely to be looking at a guest house or a pretty second-rate old crusty hotel okay a dive a dive (laughs) again with the price range of these sorts of places sitting around the 50 dollars per night ballpark figure the saving grace is food and previously mentioned coffee most meals teas shishas and coffees are really affordable a two-person mez plate will probably come between five and ten aussie dollars so take the opportunity to eat out as much as possible the food is fantastic and you're going to get away with a pretty good price compared to well everything else Mm -hmm. (laughs) of course i've been talking in aussie conversion i haven't even mentioned the jordanian dinar mostly because when it comes to dollars or dinars and cents it gets a little more complicated i failed maths in high school calculators hate me and i still use my fingers to count really but even pushing my mathematical ineptitude aside the currency here in jordan it's just downright baffling Now, I've gotten used to switching up currencies every couple of weeks. Dollars and cents, pounds and pants, I get it. But the Jordanian dinar is a whole other beast. See if you can follow me. The Jordanian dinar is usually referred to as the JD, and it's made up of 1,000 fills. Break a note, and you'll likely get a number of fills change, and sometimes even a piastre. One piastre is the equivalent of 10 fills, which makes one dinar equal to 100 piastres. Are you still with me? Coins come in 1, 5, 10, 25 and 50 piastres and notes run to the value of 1, 5, 10, 20 and 50 JD. And more often than not, when you're quoted a price for something, you'll have no idea if it's in JD, fills or piastres, so don't forget to ask. Oh, and did I mention that sometimes piastres are also referred to as a kirsch? You know, just for fun. I scripted that entire piece, but the Jordanian currency still makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. We do, though, have a cracking piece (laughs) of money-saving advice for you. So get a pen and write this down. It's called 
the Jordan Pass. The Jordan Pass is your single entry ticket to just about everything in the country. You buy it as a one or a two or a three day entry pass into Petra, which you're obviously going to go to. And it also includes entry to 39 other attractions and museums across Jordan, including the Roman ruins in Jarash and the Wadi Rum protected area. And if you get one, they will also waive the cost of your entry visa into the country, which will save you 56 US dollars. The Jordan Pass was really the defining factor on whether we could Mm. actually afford to visit the country or not. The only catch is that you have to buy it before you arrive in the country. You can't buy it when you're there. You have to get it before you enter and you have to stay for at least three days. If you want to get more info, it's easily available at this website, jordanpass.jo. Now, let's talk Petra. Okay, quick, fade the music out before we infringe some sort of copyright. It costs us a fortune. (laughs) Now, guys, I have no shame in saying this to you all, but I still haven't seen this movie that everyone seems to be going on about. I've seen one of the Indiana Jones films with the whole rock flying down the thing, but I've not seen Petra in any of these films yet. Okay, one, rocks don't fly. Two, shame on you. (laughs) Shame on you, Gabrielle Lyons. You know what I mean? The rock that's like rolling towards him. You sold your romance to me as a movie buff and I fell for it hook, line and sinker and then you let me know you haven't even seen Indiana Jones. Sorry, kid. So much shame. Step aside for a moment. (laughs) Any young boy or young person that grew up in the 80s will remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the final scene. There was Harrison Ford on horseback. There was Sean Connery making a joke about him having the name of a dog. And there was that guy who went on to play Gimli. He laughed at the joke. It was hilarious. And it all happened in front of the treasury at Petra. See? You're missing out on a cracking film. And is this the whole reason that you wanted to visit the entire country of Jordan? It's one of many reasons I wanted to visit Jordan, but mostly the reason I wanted to come to Petra. If you were one of those kids, you'll remember seeing Petra in that film. And it was so absorbing and so strange. And I've wanted to go there ever since. Mm. And finally... We got the chance to go. But it's not just about the treasury, as amazing as it was to see that. There's so much more. Mm, Absolutely. And I mean, many people do come to Petra just to see the treasury and then they leave. I mean, to get to the treasury building, you have to walk through this incredible passageway called the Seek. And there is so much to see in this kilometre odd passageway for lack of a better phrase as it leads up to this building and you kind of see the crack in the wall appear and you can see the building it's magical but most people see that take a couple photos and bugger off home one of my favorite buildings was actually called the monastery which is up 900 steps way back in the archaeological site i mean you have to walk through the entirety of the petra site to get to it and across the two days in Petra, I think, Nick, I think we easily walked 30 kilometres, if not more. I mean, this space is absolutely amazingly huge. We made very long days of our time in Petra, mm-hmm. and the 900 steps seems like absolutely nothing for the moment you see the monastery. If you're familiar with that image of the treasury in Petra, which is like the facade of a building that's carved into the rock face, the monastery is the same thing, but it's twice as high and twice as wide. If you want to see pictures, check out our Instagram account at Where Are You Taking Me Pod because there's heaps there. It was absolutely wowing. Mm-hmm. In fact, if I can play my movie buff card, oh. if you have seen the film Queen of the Desert starring Nicole Kidman, James Franco, Robert Pattinson, there is a scene where she comes in on a camel through the desert as you would expect, and you see the monastery building. And that will give you a a better idea of what you're coming towards. It's not the treasury, guys. It's actually the monastery. And it is 
mind-blowingly beautiful. That film, it was alright. It's pretty good. The real monastery is a lot better. You know, it would have made that scene better though. Mm. Indiana Jones. Oh my god. <laughs> Something that actually really surprised me is that the Bedouin people still call the caves surrounding Petra home. We had multiple young kids coming up to us to practice their English or ask for biscuits, which we happily handed over. Others making sure that we didn't get lost. We had families inviting us into their caves for dinner, which is a pretty special invitation, if I do say so myself. Petra is still very much a living, breathing community, and the people who live there have some of the most incredible stories to tell. Jordan's archaeological masterpiece Petra is not only the country's biggest draw card, but it's also one of the world's great tourist attractions. And like anywhere in the world where there's tourists, there's going to be locals trying to separate you from your hard-earned holiday cash. And let's face it, the never-ending stream of vendors selling everything from camel selfies to the official Petra-endorsed shoehorn can be a bit of a drag. But I urge you every so often to stop and take a moment to get to know the person behind the counter. You might just hear an amazing story. My name is Hanan from Petra. And have you always lived in Petra? Yes, all my life. And also I born in Petra, inside the cave. Inside a cave? Yeah. Do you know which cave it was? Yeah, behind the church mosaic there is a cave. This is where I born. My first, first family is born in from Petra, not come from outside. Born in the cave, who live in the cave, but still working, living in Petra. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have five sisters and three brothers. And my mother, she's born me where her age 55. I am the youngest one in my family. She's still alive. She number everything in Petra. She know everything. She not lost anything from her mind. By just walking and seeing that very well. But nice life and difficult life same time. As travellers, we so easily forget that the people trying to sell you souvenirs or a cup of tea, they're not doing it because they're passionate about collectible fridge magnets. For them, it's survival. And if there's no tourists, that means less food on the table. We spent two days exploring Petra and we didn't line up for a single thing. Honestly, there just weren't that many people around. Here's why. The brutality of ISIS and the ongoing war in Syria have triggered an epic humanitarian crisis, the biggest wave of refugees in modern history. Desperate men, women and children by the tens of thousands, mostly from Syria, fleeing in overcrowded... Dara is where Syria's uprising began, but it was in this same area that last month government forces snuffed out the opposition, part of a recent run of We have been displaced from southern Idlib province, which has been the target of continuous strikes. This is what forced us to move from the south to the camp in Atmeh. Has it been busy this time of year? No busy. No. And uh, you can see no people in Petra, just the people from here. What about in the summertime? Is it busier? No, in the summertime, no also. Because you know the problem at Syria is make the tourists afraid not come to Jordan, but Jordan is safe. And the people thinking because Syria is close to Jordan, he think is not safe Jordan, but Jordan very safe. No any problem from the time where the first time in Syria problem to where finished. No problem in Jordan. And for God's sake, if somebody invites you in for a cup of tea, just stop. <laughs> and also the people here is really is very friendly. 
If you don't like, if you say thank you, he not push you to do anything and not push you to buy anything. Just be friendly. Don't afraid from the people inside Petra. If you are friendly, him friendly. Don't be angry from anyone in Petra. Your store here is set up on the path to the high place of sacrifice. You're the only person here and it's very quiet. When there's no tourists, what do you think about? Hmm, I am very sad if I don't see any tourists. And I am at high mountain, the sacrifice. But anyone who will come to the sacrifice, bring any elements with him to make him sacrifice. And we'll make the barbecue, huh? <laughs> yeah, delicious. Hanan was an absolute gem and a great example of the Bedouin people. When you're in Jordan, you'll hear the phrase Bedouin hospitality a fair bit, and it's not a sales tactic in any way. We found it to be entirely genuine. And in order to learn more about the Bedouin people, we took a pretty big step for us this time around, and we decided to volunteer and live with a Bedouin family in the Wadi Rum Desert. Now, the desert itself, it's another one of those must-see attractions. If you're going to come to Jordan, you have to go and see the Wadi Rum Desert. Mm -hmm. In fact, you've probably already seen it in dozens of films like The Martian with Matt Damon, a number of the Star Wars films, the old Lawrence of Arabia from back in the day. The desert is so breathtaking. It is literally like being on Mars. You can get to points where you just look out over the craters and boulders and just stones. It's very harsh, but just so beautiful. And again, if you're going there, you have to see it. Mm. That's just it. I was singing Bowie's Life on Mars in my head just about everywhere we Mm. went. (laughs) And the Bedouin people are phenomenal. Now, I have to be really brutally honest here. This was a really tough experience to begin with. And living with the family meant that I personally had to leave my first world problems and expectations at the door because Bedouin people live very, very simply. I'm talking mattress on the floor, no flushing loos, a lot of conversations that just really got lost in translation, led to a lot of crazy fun stories. But the upside, Bedouin people love tea. So that suited me just fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as it turned out, once I got settled in and got to know the community, got to know the other volunteers that we really got along with so wonderfully, it was a really thoroughly rewarding experience and something that I will never, ever forget. Yeah, we had a really unique time at Wadi (laughs) Rum. Most people that do visit, though, they'll go to almost the complete opposite end Mm -hmm. of the scale that we went to and stay at one of these luxury Bedouin camps, which are not, in fact particularly Bedouin at all. It's like a hotel in the desert. For a real Bedouin experience, you have to meet the actual Bedouin people. You have to take the time to get to know them and find out why the desert for them it, it isn't just a place. It's a way of life. First thing, you know, usually the Bedouin in the tent, they have the coffee, the Bedouin coffee. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's the Bedouin coffee with the cardamom, they mix it together. They sometimes find them neighbors, some families together. Mm-hmm. So they come in one tent and they make the coffee and they sit near the fire and they tell the story, all the story. And sometimes they tell the, the poem, they, they sing sometimes. Yeah, uh, sometimes, yes, if you hear the funny, jo- uh, funny stories, yes, and funny stories and funny... It sounds awfully romantic, doesn't it? Here I am sitting on the edge of a rocky escarpment, staring out over a vast, never-ending landscape of red sand, 
Muhammad is sitting beside me. Actually, he's rather comfortably lazing. Stretched out across the rocks, sandals kicked off, almost always adjusting his headscarf. He smiles with a gap between his two front teeth. And as he begins to tell me the history of Bedouin culture, his golden eyes illuminate, and he uses his hands to animate each and every word. Then they leave to another place. So sometimes when they carry with them the food, because they ride animals like horse and camels, and they don't have, they was, they don't have cars like now. So it's hard for them to carry... Before we get too swept away in the nostalgia of Arabian nights and nomadic camel caravans selling dried dates at the corner of an oasis, unsurprisingly, Bedouin culture is changing, modernising, as many nomadic cultures around the world have been forced to do. There was no border between... Jordan and Saudi Arabia, so they can be between from Jordan to Syria, Egypt. Now we are staying in this area, and some Bedouin just still stay in Wadi Aram Desert. They don't move more other desert because they have houses and they have they, they live in the village. Much from them in the village, they leave the desert to the city because uh, for the, the schools, for the children, for they look for easy life. How about your life, Mohammed? You are still in the desert. How regularly do you get to wander into the desert? Uh, my life in the desert is I have to stay in the desert because I work with the tourism. So I show them, I help the tourists in the desert to show them the desert, our life, our culture, our everything, uh, what they want in the desert. Bedouin life is simple. It's a pot of tea, a sense of community, and ultimately survival in the harshest of conditions. It's a far cry from its portrayal on social media. There is a huge difference between Bedouin life and the luxury of hashtag Bedouin life. As a result, Muhammad feels his culture is being betrayed. The, the Bedouin here, they want to show their life and desert and their life. Now there's people, they make like big camps, luxury camps. It's not from our culture, not from our life, not like people, just business, you know. They don't care if they broke the desert, just care for money. And the Bedouin, they don't live this life. People, they are, they are not happy with these camps, you know. The Bedouin, they are not close from the camps, the tourist place, because you find them, they go very little bit uh, deep in the desert, go far from the tourist place, you know, because they want to be alone, you know. They make the big camps. Actually, it's not camps, it's hotels, you know, luxury hotels. So I, we are frightened from the future and more camps like this is not good at all, you know. What we like and show them also our life, you know, we make the fire, we sit together with the people and we talk together and we tell them about desert life, about our life. But then like this luxury camp, you can't sit with people, you can't, that between. Muhammad explained how tricky it is now for travellers to find and experience the real Bedouin lifestyle, and truly hopes that those who do venture to Wadi Rum are prepared to live simply and see the desert through the eyes of a Bedouin family. He promises authenticity when travellers come his way. I, I, I born in this desert and, and this is my home, you know. Sometimes really when we go to a big city like Amman, like Aqaba, I don't rest much, you know. Much I miss the desert. A lot, I miss the desert. Sometimes I sit in a man two days just for work, and then I, I feel I miss the desert, so I back, you know, my home. I cannot stress this enough. 
if you're gonna go to Wadi Rum, stay in a camp that's being run by a local family, suck it up, skip the luxury option, you're probably only gonna be there for one night anyway, and you will be repaid with a true cultural experience. Mm -hmm. And Muhammad is the best, basically. Yeah, he's a dude. He's such a dude. (laughs) If it hasn't been made clear already in this episode, the Jordanian people are truly astounding. Beyond the hospitality, from the moment we arrived, people went out of their way to help us, make sure we felt safe, and went over and above to welcome us into their culture. As a small anecdote... We sat down at a local restaurant in Amman on day one, looking dazed and confused, peering at this menu that was fully in Arabic, when a woman leant across from her table and said, Psst, order the stuffed falafel. And even when the waiter came around, she just said, they'll have the same as us. And we had a total feast. Mm-mm. It was unbelievable. I think it was my favourite meal in the entire time that we've been in Jordan. It well, was we did phenomenal. it twice again after that. We did. Um, <laughs> and this was just a small example of the kindness that radiates from the people here. Not to mention every time someone asked us where we were from, the token response you'd usually get was, oh, Australia, kangaroo. But that didn't happen here. Instead, the Jordanian people give you a warm nod and say, welcome. It's truly beautiful. So if you take just one thing away from this podcast episode, that is to always buy the stuffed falafel. It's delicious. It is amazing. (laughs) We'd like to end the episode today, though, by introducing you to one of the most interesting people I reckon we've met, not just in Jordan, but probably since we first began this trip. Gaith is the absolute definition of the phrase, change has to start somewhere. Way back before we started travelling, I had a mini stress attack over what book I wanted to take along as my holiday read. This was a real challenge for me. I wanted a gripping story, but something that was also easy to pick up as the months passed by. And possibly, I made the wrong decision. Carrying everything in a backpack perhaps didn't call for a 650-page book. It's huge and heavy, but now, seven months in, I only have 20 pages left. The panic has returned. So when we arrived in Jordan, as Nick and I tend to do in every country we visit, we find the nearest bookshop, scour the shelves, flick through the rare pages, and absorb the second-hand dust particles that litter the air. Bookshops, to me, no matter where you are in the world, are like a homecoming. A cosy, welcoming space for you to escape, perhaps the manic Middle Eastern streetscape outside. And this brings us to Madaba, a small city about 32 kilometres south of the Jordanian capital Amman. Madaba is pretty much known for one thing. It holds the world's oldest mosaic map, and not much else. So when I started hunting around for the likes of a bookshop, I was surprised to find one tucked away in a hundred-year-old building. And if this bookshop was to be a book in its own right, well, this would be the prologue. I have lived in the car during summertime when it was uh, too hot. I slept outside of the car, of course, using like carton boxes and stuff like that just to make a small, humble bed. And I went uh, back and uh, forth uh, from my hometown, Madaba, to Amman, 
once or twice a week. So I spent 10 months on the streets selling books on top of my car. It was an initiative called Books on the Road. So I put books uh, on top of an old Mercedes. It's a 1974 car, the W114, and it has this classical appeal. So people automatically started coming to the car, the mobile bookshop, and asking me, what is happening? Why are you displaying your books on your car? And I tell them the, the plain and clear, the truth, I'm financing the first bookshop in town, and that's it. In the Arabic language, the word Cohen translates to mean universe. If you consider for a moment pages of books filled with other worlds, romantic characters, murder mysteries, ancient tales as told by poets, are the shelves of a bookshop not similar to that of an entirely new universe? This is the world Gaiath has set out to create, a space unlike any other in his small town of Madaba. Cohen is the only bookshop in town. People have called me crazy. Crazy guy selling books where people don't read. A shrink uh, said you have opened a pharmacy in a graveyard. The community here is not, uh, they're not really associated in reading a lot or reading culture. So all of them have uh, estimated that I will fail in the first six months. But I have been here for three years now. Gaith has always been a reader. When I asked him what his favorite book was, he couldn't answer and said we would need a lot more time together for him to recite his list of favourites. But Gaith has not always been the bookshop guy. In fact, he worked in risk assessment for an insurance firm, stuck at a desk for long, arduous, boring hours. Actually, my stepdad works in risk assessment. I'll let him tell you a little bit about what he does. Let me know if it inspires you. Most people including people within the finance industry, see risk management as credit risk, the assessment of the creditworthiness of a counterparty or customer for finance or a loan. At a portfolio level, we measure credit risk based Are you still on with the me? probability of default. Now do you understand why Gaith was searching for a change? These two measurements assist us in understanding the expected loss within the portfolio. I didn't really know what to do with my life, so I decided to give my life to the things that I love, and books was one of them. And I decided to uh, revolve my life all around books. And from that idea, uh, the, the bookshop idea emerged, from giving my life to books. Uh, inside the bookshop, it's uh, uh, really cozy. I choose all, uh, always old buildings for the love of the architecture in it. It looks like a cave inside, and when you go inside, you see all these shelves full of books. And uh, the special thing about the bookshop is you find a large section of rare books and old books. So this is the speciality of the bookshop, it's the rare books. But Gaith is not the first person to attempt running a bookshop in Madaba. Back in the 1980s, two others tried and failed. So when they planned, they planned the short term. That's why they failed, because they were looking for money gain more than uh, being, uh, uh, you know, rooted down and uh, being more sustainable and establishing that reader's base that you will count on. And this is what I'm doing. I am slowly establishing and nurturing my readers and expanding it as well. So my readers are not just Arabs. They focus on Arabs. I have 20 languages in my bookshop, so I attract the expats here, living in Jordan, foreigners, travelers, anybody who has a book request in his own language might find it in my bookshop. As far as sourcing books goes, how have you been able to find all these books in lots of different languages? Where have you found them? 
Since I have started working on the streets in 2016, I have met a lot of amazing people. And those people have been backing the bookshop and donating books to it since three years. So thanks to them, thanks to their effort, thanks to society's effort, I still exist. Who are some of these people? Are they book lovers as well? They are book lovers, of course. They are readers. They are parents. They are kids. A little girl, 12-year-old girl, donated her entire bookcase in her home to the bookshop after learning about my initiative. A very, very, very old lady and an active member in our society here in Jordan uh, gave more than 3,000 books to the bookshop so far. Just a humble, you know, uh, example of the donors. And I have received uh, donations from all around the world, not just Jordan. I received it from the States, from Israel, Palestine, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, as a bookshop, you know, you are a, a neutral person. You don't have any bias to anyone, whether uh, their gender, their race, where they come from. So I accept anything from people who want books to be uh, spread. If I can share a little bit of insight with you, it has truly amazed me world over meeting so many people with so much drive to instigate change in their corner of the world. The Middle East is plagued with news stories of border tension, dumbfounding politics and warfare. And yet, if you look beyond the headlines, at ground level, there are people like Guy, who by opening a bookshop has changed the shape of Madaba. In fact, he's just opened a new store. He needed more shelf space. And has offered the room not only to quiet folk searching for a good read, but also to social activists, book clubs, language practice, tutoring workshops. Guyth has not only provided the town with its only bookshop, but also a creative outlet for anyone in Madaba to express, well, themselves. Regardless about reading or about book culture or it's about life in general. Any person that aspires of doing something, I only have a poetry verse for them. The poetry verse says, if you have ventured for glory, do not be content with less than the stars. Because death tastes the same, whether the hazard be small or great. So if we don't really take risks, if we don't have really high sky ambitions, we won't be able to live. So do what you love and love what you do. This is what's important. Yeah, it's the best thing that I ever done. I changed my whole life. I stopped from being a corporate guy wearing a suit and shaving every day to a complete free person right now. Yeah. Gapshuna Sigurka Pajama Oira Orira Oira Jau Pajagoma Wajar Zikeshama Ohubjewasar Psami Ziputshama Adaganasa Wana Idoshara Oira Orira Oira Eji Adagaka Eji Sikabzadaka Dari Ashkau Tama Nafatanach, 
Shukran, and thank you for listening to Where Are You Taking Me? I'm Gabby Lyons. And I'm Nick King. Thanks for joining us for Jordan A Feeling. Trust me, sing it, the pun will make sense. <laughs> for more, you can find us on Instagram at Where Are You Taking Me Pod. And if you like the podcast, please share it around, tell your friends and family. Just finally, before we do go, Gabby, I wanted to raise the fact that I think this is the first place we've visited where we've seen every single thing that we wanted to see. After a dozen countries, we've finally gotten it right. Are you trying to say that we won't be coming back? Not immediately. We did a good thing. Let's celebrate this for a moment, can we? (laughs) Anyway, next time on Where Are You... Next time on Where Are You Taking Me, something a little bit different. Nick, you and I are going to have a conversation. Am I in trouble? No, but what we are going to do is a bit of a reality check, so to speak. After more than six months on the road, we'll be discussing some of the pros and cons of long-term backpacking and a few of the hiccups that we found along the way that we never anticipated. For now, though, we're out. We'll see you next time. See you next time. What is goodbye in Arabic? I don't know. (laughs) We've clearly learnt a lot. given default. These two measurements assist us in understanding the expected loss within the portfolio and ensure we establish appropriate levels of privilege. What this go for? He sent us a lot of tape. Yes, a lot of this is actually the longest episode we've ever done. We put this music underneath it and I think it's going to run out before. Oh, there it goes. Yep, it stopped. He's very passionate. Chris is very passionate about risk assessment. Do you think you'll be offended if we fade him out? Nah, you'll be right, won't you, Chris? Bye, Chris. Bye, Chris. Bye. Bye. It's a good show, though. Yeah, right.